Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming directly from the Walter P. Ruther Library, Wayne State University in the heart of lovely Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner. I'll be your host today. And as always, I'm here with Troy Eller English. Hi, Troy. Hello, Dan. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. Are you enjoying the summer so far? It is beautiful to look at uh, from inside an air-conditioned space. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be hot. It's going to be a hot one. It's going to be a long summer. Our boys in blue, our Detroit Tigers, are making this a very long summer. (laughs) Very, very long summer. Anyway, let me get right to it. Um, Today's podcast, the interview was done by Megan Courtney, our outreach archivist. Um, I was out somewhere else doing something very important, I'm sure. Of course. Yeah, of course. But she was talked to Jeremy Malloy. um, He's a postdoc at Trent University's Frost Center for Canadian Studies and Indigenous Studies. Um, He was here a while back working on his PhD that dealt with workplace violence and got a book out of it called Blood, Sweat, and Fear. Violence at Work in the North American Auto Industry from 1960 to 1980. So good kudos to him. And while he was here, um, something grabbed his attention, and that was drug use in in the auto plants. Um, So he's working on a book, The Rise of Drug Use in the Workplace in the 1960s, and examines work cultures in the workplace, class consciousness, and conflict up into the 90s. Um, now, there's very little written about this, uh, the history of um, addiction, especially drug use within the workplace. So Dr. Malloy is really hitting onto um, uh, virgin territory here. Um, it's going to be looking at the intertwinement of addiction recovery in the workplace settings of workers in the workplace and, and public health. Um, so we're going to break this into two podcasts, right, Troy? We are. Okay. Part one will be a brief intro to the history of workplace addiction, specifically looking at AA and how it was started. But he goes right into the 1960s, and he focuses in on the Eldon plant on the east side of Detroit, and a program that was started by UAW Local 961, and that was picked up by the company, and they got the, all these grants to do it. It was called CHIP, Curb Heroin and Plants. It was a promising program that was the treatment for addicts, not a punishment for the addicts that were working in the plants. So let's jump right in. This is Megan Courtney, Outreach Archivist at the Ruther Library, and I'm here today with Jeremy Malloy of the University of Trent. Trent University? Trent University. Trent University. Okay. And we're here to talk about your work. Um, tell us a little bit of background about the project and maybe how you got started um, with your interests. Okay. So this project actually came out of previous work I did here at the library uh, when I was researching uh, my doctoral project on violence in the workplace. I noticed uh, one of the major vectors that violence came out of was was drugs, drug use, drug sales. And also, I mean, I defined violence very broadly for that project. I was actually more interested in what people at the time were saying, defining as violent, than you know, what I was coming back in 20, you know, at the time 2012 and saying was violent. So I was looking at a broad spectrum of violences. And one of the things people identified as the, the violence of factory work in that time was how many workers were, uh, you know, turning to alcohol or drugs uh, to, you know, handle the the pace of the assembly line or you know handle stress at the job or danger 
And so I, I kind of tucked that away in the back of my mind that, you know, that would be a good project um, to look at. And, and as I started doing some more research, I realized that there's been a lot of really good history on drugs uh, in the last 20 years and, and addiction, drug policy, mass incarceration. But there hasn't been a lot uh, that considers drug users as workers, mm-hmm. not just as, as users of substances, which is often in the literature you see drug users just kind of in conflict with the state, in contact with the state. They're being regulated, they're resisting it, they're going to jail, they're being put in institutions. But uh, you know, we know historically, like today, you know, most people who, who, who use drugs or have uh, you know, substance use disorder uh, are workers. Uh, obviously, most people who drink alcohol are workers. And so I, I thought that that was a, a really interesting kind of intersection, the intersection of, of, of addiction or substance use, uh, of course, are not the same thing. And, uh, and workplace dynamics. So I, I started researching that and, and I knew that there were good sources here. So um, I've been back, I, I came here in June last mm-hmm. year to look at this and, and, and I was fortunate enough to have uh, been given a Fishman Travel Grant this year to come back and, and look at it some more. So that's kind of where, how I started to get going on it. Great, well, we're happy to have you back. Um, in your work, you mentioned a little bit that it's kind of in the 1960s that um, this shift happens where people are starting to identify drug use um, in, in, amongst workers mm-hmm. um, as a significant problem. Um, can you talk a little bit about maybe the ways that they described that issue and um, maybe some of the early interventions that were attempted um, right around that time? Sure. So the 1960s is a really pivotal moment for this history because Certainly, it wasn't the first time that people at the workplace were concerned with addiction or doing something about it. I mean, this that goes back all the way to you know industrialization and probably before concerns about sober workmen. You know, are, are seen in the 19th century, for example, and in the 20th century. Uh, you know, in the 20s and 30s, you have the rise of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is strongly connected to to at first male career paths and and mm. uh, you know issues of of middle class men. Basically, Trish Travis talks about it pretty well in her book. Um, and so those are kind of the early 20th century workplace addiction efforts. Usually what you would have is somebody at a company, DuPont is an early major example, mm-hmm. that uh, has an addiction issue and, and gets over it with the help of AA. And then they become very kind of evangelical about it. And they think that, well, I know that there's a lot of other people at my workplace I can help. So they come back in and they talk to a manager maybe about saying, hey, can we have some space to do a meeting here once a week or something? And it's very kind of grassroots. Uh, and and then that grows because you know AA and and its its allies are very successful at uh, promulgating the disease uh, understanding of alcohol addiction, and um, so companies more and more look to start having formalized programs, what they called at the time industrial alcoholism programs. Mm. And this changes in the '60s because, as you point out, what changes is is the the, the concern about drugs gets added um, because before people did not think of drug users as workers generally. Mm. Um, and there's just a wider understanding and, and awareness of drug use as like a major problem in society. And like in the late 60s, Americans are very worried about drug use, uh, you know, obviously with the youth culture, with hippies, with things like that. Drug use is very visible. And I haven't seen data on it, but I would argue that probably more Americans are using uh, illegal drugs in the 1960s than had previously. I do think it becomes more mainstream. And so there's this big concern. Number one, that um, some of the things that they look at and worry about are uh, these are the young people that use drugs, right? And so they're like, this is the future generation of American workers. We're going to have to deal with this. The other thing people are very worried about, it goes along with the war in Vietnam, where there's a belief that a lot of the soldiers are become introduced to or becoming addicted to drugs as a result of their military service and are going to be coming home and bringing that into the workplace. So that's a big concern too. 
in terms of uh, responses, what happens is in the 60s and 70s, like in most fields, is a very experimental time uh, at, at a policy level. People try a lot of interesting things. Um, and one of the interesting things that I see tried, we can talk about maybe a little later, is, is, is curb heroin in plants, or mm. CHIP, which was a uh, union-run methadone program uh, here in Detroit that was uh, run by the people who ran Local 961, the union stewards there. So uh, I, I, I researched that. That was kind of like the first thing that I really saw here at the archives that I was like, wow, they've got a lot of records of CHIP upstairs. And mm. it was one of the first things that I was like, whoa, this is, this is fascinating, because it kind of goes away from a lot of the narratives that we hear, even about the war on drugs, you know, the 70s war on drugs is, yes, a time of, you know, increasing money towards um, uh, stopping the war on drugs, you know, overseas in Canada and, and a lot of the more traditional punitive measures we tend to think of. But there's also a ton of experimental solutions being tried. So different companies are trying their own things. I know Citibank has a program where they're trying to get heroin users hired um, back in the job. There's this program like CHIP. So there's a lot of experimental solutions happening. The thing that I would say unifies them and unifies what's happening is there's this belief that employment is two beliefs. One, that employment is crucial for recovering people, that you need to get recovering people into a structured environment where they're working for wages. Number two, that um, for employed addicts or employed people with what we would now call substance use disorder, uh, the workplace is like this crucial lever to shake them free of their addiction because the belief is you had you know addicts have denial and you have to break through that denial and you know addicts like the, you see this over and over in the literature um, of the time is you know an addict won't care if you take away their their husband or their wife they won't care if you take away their kids which yeah you know, I don't I don't think this is very accurate <laughs> but I do think this is the view sure. Uh, if you t threaten to take away their job, they're like, that's the pivot point. That's where you have all this leverage over people. And huh. so uh, there's, this, there's a method called constructive confrontation, which is supposed to have people say, hey, you know, Jenny, we notice you've been coming in late. You notice you smell like, you know, booze or whatever. And, and well, actually, you're not supposed to say that. It's all supposed to be job related. You're supposed to say you're coming in late, your work is suffering, and not supposed to diagnose substance abuse because supervisors aren't qualified for that. They're not substance abuse counselors. So there's that kind of um, experimental, uh, a variety of approaches, and, and they do kind of coalesce into something more standardized. Uh, but what they're united by is this belief that the employment relationship is like the crucial area to reach uh, uh, recovering people and using people. That is really interesting. Um, so CHIP is actually something that I didn't know much about. And why don't you tell us a little bit? So you mentioned that they're they're wanting to base um, the confrontation in work-related stuff. Is that mm -hmm. coming out of CHIP? Is that something that um, that is, is suggested by the union? Is it something that... Um, the employer is doing. Talk a little bit about that. Okay, uh, so this approach of this constructive confrontation approach, it's pioneered before CHIP, and I would argue that oh. CHIP's interesting in part because it's a little bit of a departure from that. Okay. Um, it certainly also believes, like the constructive confrontation approach, that the workplace is this key area to reach addicts. Mm -hmm. But it, it differs in that a lot of programs are started by management or a lot of programs are started by professionals. And, and this program kind of harkens back to the earlier ones in which it was started by workers. But workers who I do not believe were recovering addicts they were union stewards who saw how much heroin abuse was happening at um, the Eldon Avenue plant um, 
in Detroit and decided to do something about it and thought that the best way to reach a worker was kind of through other workers because these would be people who would be able to understand what they were going through on the job. So they had an understanding that addiction wasn't kind of a, um, you know, kind of universal variable that happens to you, whether you're, uh, you know, an archivist or a banker or, or an auto worker, they were like, it is, you know, related to the conditions of work. And we have to kind of address that. There seems to be some kind of understanding mm -hmm. that they need people who can understand them at the job and also people who will be available to them at the job. Mm -hmm. Because there's a strong culture of heroin use at, at Eldon Avenue in that time. There's a lot of other workers that are using. And, and so it's kind of an understood, accepted thing. People know where to go in the plant to get drugs. Mm -hmm. And so they said, well, these people need someone that if they're in the middle of the day and they're struggling and they're you know backed up and they've got to work a double shift and you know there's someone at the plant that they can talk to yeah. and say hey I'm, I'm i'm really you know i'm really tempted or whatever um so what what chip was um you know and again this is a time in the early 70s uh in auto work there's quite a lot of drug use uh in the detroit area plants especially but i know for example also in uh, some of the california plants uh, that GM ran. Uh, so this is a major industrial issue and employers are concerned about it. I mean, interestingly, when I was studying workplace violence, like employers seem to be concerned, but not that concerned about workplace violence. And it certainly wasn't diagnosed as like a specific social issue. Like today, when we do have workplace violence and harassment policies, like mm -hmm. people were like, well, violence happens and it's bad, but nobody really thought there was something you could do about it. Mm. Whereas drugs, I mean, you get, you, you, you see companies are starting to in the seventies, like, what do we do? And, and you see letters, there's letters upstairs in the files of and people like Leonard Woodcock writing to other UAW leaders saying, we know this is a problem. There's not really a set medical approach yet um, uh, you know there's not like one thing we know how to do we're still figuring it out we just know that this is really threatening um, our work in some of these plants mm -hmm. so they're willing to support kind of uh, efforts like this the companies the union they're all willing to support kind of an experimental approach and I think coming out of the 60s and, and the war on poverty and, and the the idea of you know community up interventions there's support for this uh, this intervention so what the way it would work was you go to chips clinic in the morning you're as an auto worker, mm -hmm. you get methadone mm -hmm. uh, for the day. And one of the wrinkles in their approach was they were using methadone uh, for not just maintenance, uh, but they were hoping that that methadone would lead you to abstinence, mm -hmm. which is not really accepted best practices in methadone maintenance then or now, but or well, not in methadone therapy. So you'd get methadone, you'd get some counseling, and uh, and then you would work your shift, and maybe you you know you get a counseling uh, that would be vocational, uh, but you'd also get counseling, family counseling, you'd also be getting drug counseling, and it was so they were trying to kind of treat the addict as a worker, and, but on and off the job, mm. um, and they actually received a million dollars from the. Uh, National Institute on Drug Abuse in 1974, and that's a 1974 wow. million dollars. So, yeah. ooh, <laughs> that, that is a lot. Um, in case anybody doesn't know, talk just briefly about how methadone works. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so methadone is a uh, you know it's a narcotic drug, and it works in that um, it does get you high. I mean, does get you somewhat high. There is a, there is a, a physical reaction from it. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, what it does because of that is kind of reduces the craving for heroin, mm -hmm. but it is, it is basically, it is a drug of a different kind. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it is uh, an opiate style drug, mm -hmm. um, which led to a big controversy because there were people and, and, um, Claire Clark, uh, a historian, she's done really good work on this, um, in her article, methadone is the new hope, for example, 
there's a lot of controversy among people in recovery at the time and, and experts because some people think, well, you're just substituting one drug for another. Mm -hmm. These people aren't getting off drugs because you know, there's a big belief, is that what you want? Uh, or do you want health? Do you want a healthy population? Do you want people who can go to work? Because the, the other side was saying, well, what you're offering isn't proven to work. It's not scientific. Abstinence is not proven to work. It's not scientific. Mm -hmm. And we have something that we have done clinical trials on, and it was proven to work. And it's proven, again, to get people back to work. Like that was always one of the metrics mm -hmm. was not just, you know, do people stay out of prison or do they stop using heroin? It's do they achieve employment? So one of the things I argue is that to a much greater extent than we kind of have gotten to grips with, business and capitalism and, and the idea of the labor market has shaped both what we define as addiction and what we define as recovery to a far greater extent than we really appreciate. Mm. A lot of the ways that people are, are being identified as addicts and being put through treatment is through the workplace model, and, that, and that's enormously important. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, my, my just baseline understanding um, was that at the, at the basic level, the goal was to reduce the risk of um, death from heroin overdose and yep. to keep you somewhat functional um, while you sort out the other um, aspects that relate to your addiction and figure out how to live a productive life. Yeah, absolutely. It's to provide stability. So it's to give you something that reduces that craving for heroin so that you are able to, you know, just have a regulated daily routine. I mean, and similarly to, uh, I believe it's Portugal that has had experiments with just giving addicts or people with substance use disorder or people who are opiate users, however you want to define it, um, just a little bit of, of, of heroin or morphine uh, in a controlled setting uh, on a daily basis or uh, every couple of days against the same kind of principle as methadone, which makes you wonder is the chemical or if it's just the stability, hmm. right? If the instability from heroin use comes from the fact that heroin use is illegal and to buy heroin you have to put yourself into shady situations and, you know, you often have to do crime to make enough money because it's illegal so it's really expensive, mm -hmm. you know, things of that nature. Um, yeah. Okay. So um, getting back to CHIP as a concept, you mentioned mm -hmm. that they got a big grant and Huge. that they were running um, the program out of, it sounds like, was it just Eldon Avenue or was it several plants that were? So as a condition of the grant, one of the, I think, flaws that CHIP had was they expanded really quickly, okay. um, partly to justify getting a million dollars. And I think just an aside, a million dollars, again, justifies the, the historical point that the early war on drugs, even in the Nixon administration uh, and the Ford administration was, you know, investing in experimental solutions. Um, you know, I, I, I would be hard-pressed to see a group like this getting significant federal backing today. I could be wrong, but... Um, so to partly to justify, because they said we were going to treat a certain number of addicts, and, and to identify and to treat that many people, they expanded it out to other Detroit plant, auto plants, and they also started treating alcohol abuse as well as heroin addiction. So it kind of really waters down the treatment modality, and, and, and I think they kind of, it was a little too much too soon. Mm-hmm for CHIP, um, but early, early, and they also contracted with the University of Michigan School of Public Health to run an investigation, uh, an evaluation, excuse me, of the program. And uh, so those records are also upstairs, the records of the, um, of the U of M kind of observation of the program. That's really interesting. So what did they find? Uh, they found that the program was not super successful. Mm. Um, and this is, you know, my wife's a scientist, and, and, and I think she would tell me that that's the story of science. <laughs> a lot of times you're, the story is your experiment didn't really, you know, it produced what you thought it would. So they did not seem to have 
notable success transitioning people off of heroin use, which is their which is their goal. And perhaps if they had had different goals, like maintaining employment, uh, it would have it would have worked better. One of the other things there was so there was an improvement in in kind of things like uh, attitude and overall sense of well-being and and family dynamics. They reported improvements in those areas, which mm. I thought was interesting. One of the things that they didn't show improvement in and actually reduced slightly was happiness with auto work huh. and the job. And and the the, the 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 evaluators wrote something like perhaps it's not reasonable to expect that you can make people happier, <laughs> which I think is a really telling story of the auto work conditions at the time that it doesn't matter, like whether you're using heroin or methadone or nothing, that these are really difficult jobs. Did they identify what um, conditions of work uh, were particularly upsetting to people or that they or do they include that in the study at all? It's tough to say. I mean, I don't think they included it in the study because U of M, I don't think, was going into the plants. I think they were going into the clinic oh, okay. and, and watching the treatment there and observing that. Um, and and one, of, one of the things I think, it's hard to say because we, one of the, the things that I don't find enough details on yet is the actual nuts and bolts of what kind of things were being discussed in counseling, which is understandable. Sure. One of the challenges of researching this topic is a lot of things are confidential and a lot of things would not be given to archivists or they would have, you know, pretty serious restrictions. So I, uh, there is a lot of good stuff in the archives, um, but I do have to do some reading between the lines or, or, uh, you know, just saying there's some things I'm just not going to know and go from there. Um, but one of the things that I feel confident enough to say is I don't think they did have enough of a focus on the workplace and, and how, how dynamics in the workplace were contributing um, to addiction. And, and there's a lot of good public health research now where we know that um, workplaces, work, paid work or unpaid work, uh, legal or illegal, um, intersects with people's drug using careers in a variety of ways. It's not simple as people do drugs so they can work or people do drugs so they can't. Like those are the two kind of dominant views, but really people combine drugs and work in all kinds of different ways, whether legal or illegal and for different reasons. Sometimes work helps people stay off of drugs or use drugs in a healthy way or you know maintain a healthy life. Sometimes work is bad for you and sometimes work I think does um, predispose one to abuse substances. So there's there's kind of a, a a lot of different aspects of it, but I do think that work is. Uh, I think scholars have proven today that work is something that needs attention when we're talking about drug use and drug treatment. And I think that Chip had the beginnings of that idea. Obviously, knowing that they could be there on and off the job, and that there should be some kind of vocational counseling was important. But to me, there's no records of them trying to do anything in the plants to reduce uh, the situation that the workers were facing to try and. Um, that would drive them to use drugs in the first place. Yeah. So there was no adjustment to work assignment or the method of work, anything like that? Not as far as I know. Um, and of course, there are a lot of people at that time trying to change conditions and work in those plants for better uh, in Eldon Avenue, in Dodge, Maine, and other Chrysler plants in the Detroit area. And they're having a really hard time doing it. So. And that was Megan Courtney, Outreach Archivist for the Ruther Library, interviewing Dr. Jeremy Malloy, a postdoc fellow at Trent University, doing research on a Fishman grant. Uh, the Fishman grant is something that we uh, said a $1,000 grant um, for a couple researchers to come here and use our union archives. Um, it usually the postings for applications are in the fall, so pay attention to our website to see more information. Um, listen to the next episode, which is going to be part two of this uh, story that Megan conducted with Jeremy, um, about more about the drug place work issues in the 1980s. Drug place work drug issues? Drug place issues? <laughs> <laughs>
Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller-English. Special assistance from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neerink. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. So he starts looking at that, uh, specifically at a plant, the Eldron plant. Um, (laughs) Eldron? Eldron. Elden. Is it Elden? (laughs) Eldron is uh, Star Wars or something. That's why why I'm... Uh, let's start at part one. Sorry about that. Eldron. 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 Elden. Elden. Fine. That was Megan Courtney interviewing Jeremy Lee. Jeremy Lee? <laughs> Jeremy Lee. <laughs> yeah, you, you laugh at me. Ah, uh, ah, uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Stay tuned for part two, which I don't know. I really don't know. I don't know what to say. <laughs> Stay tuned to part two. Uh, um, I. You're gonna kill this me, aren't you? This is going to be a mess. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I really wanted to hit it because I, I know like you don't. I have four die. hours to get I know, this uh, I know. posted. I'm sorry. <laughs>